0: Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come together today to worship you during this season of Easter, as well as this joyous day of the union of David and Marion, we ask, Lord, that you would so enlighten our hearts with your word, that we would be inspired to know and love you and work in your grace. To accomplish that end for which you have created us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. Let me start out by saying it's uh, a great privilege and joy to be. Um, walking this uh, journey uh, and uh, going through our time of counseling as well as just having known both of you as parishioners. Uh, it always gives me great joy as, as the vicar to, to see two people come together in this sacrament. I want to start out by remembering um, His Royal Highness Prince Philip, as most of you know, passed away this past Week, I guess. Or was it more than a week ago? But before he died, he had been married to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II for almost 70 years. Actually, over 70 years, I believe, because the What was it? 73. Thank you. Yes, 73 years. You think about that for a moment. That's longer than many people live, to be married for 73 years. At their 50th anniversary celebration, during a toast... Philip offered the following words. He said, I think the main lesson we've learned is that tolerance is one of the essential ingredients to any happy marriage. It may not be quite so important when things are going well, but it is absolutely vital when the going gets difficult. And you can take it from me, he continued, the queen has a quality of tolerance in abundance. Everybody laughed, of course, and... Uh, Philip had a twinkle in his eye, as he said that. But how true it is, not just with holy matrimony, but with any relationship, that tolerance is so important in friendships, in collegial relationships at work, in greater society even. The most productive and most harmonious relationships occur when people of conviction and principle temper their own opinions with tolerance out of love for other people whom they love. That tolerance comes out of a love or a charity, as St. Paul tells the Colossian church in our reading today. At the very least, it comes out of graciousness, if not that charity. And all human relationships are the same. When we deal with one another, there's always something about the person that we enjoy and something that we find obnoxious. I won't put David and Marion on the spot, but this is true with all couples. And it's sometimes those things that we initially enjoy that become the things that are obnoxious to us, right? Anyone that's been married for any length of time knows that. Why do we put up with it? Out of love. Friendships are the basis of relationships. And when we look at friendship, we see that there are actually uh, three different types of friendship. They can fall into three different categories. Uh, Aristotle, the great philosopher, remarked on these categories when he said that There's friendships of usefulness, friendships of shared pleasure, and friendships of shared virtue. And I'm willing to bet that if you think about it, you've probably experienced all three in your life. If you haven't thought about how to categorize them, you've certainly experienced these three things, right? Think about it for a moment. You know, we usually call these friendships things like, oh, well, they're an acquaintance or they're a golfing buddy or they're a colleague, or they're a coworker, right? We still say that they're friends, but they're very different than the deep friendships that we have that go for years. Aristotle said this about such friends. He said, Now, when the motive of affection is usefulness, partners do not feel affection for one another per se, but in terms of the good accruing to each from the other. The same is true of those whose friendships are based on pleasure. In other words, the friend is not loved because he's a friend, but because he's useful or pleasant. Consequently, he continues, such friendships are easily dissolved when the partners do not remain unchanged. The affection ceases as soon as one partner is no longer pleasant to the other. He writes this in the Nicomachean Ethics, Book 8. This great pre-Christian philosopher, was an expert in observing human behavior, as we see. And as we look around us today, we see many relationships built on usefulness or shared pleasure. Such relationships aren't always bad. Relationships of this type have their places, as we said, with roommates or colleagues or, you know, going and having a drink together or going golfing or going and shooting at the shooting range, or whatever our hobby might be. But such relationships of usefulness and pleasure certainly cannot be the foundation of marriage or deep friendship. They might start out that way, but they must continue on to something more. There's another kind of relationship that endures. Aristotle noticed that the relationship between virtuous people is the one that endures and the one that's long-lasting. Here's what he says. Those who wish for their friends' good, for their friends' sake, are friends in the truest sense, since their attitude is determined by what their friends are, and not by incidental considerations. Hence, their friendship lasts as long as they are good and, and virtuous, and goodness and virtue are things that last. Let me repeat just the first line of that. Those who wish for their friends' good, for their friends' sake, are friends in the truest sense. Desiring and acting for the good of another person. That's the classical Christian definition of love. Desiring and acting for the good of of another person. To desire what's best for someone else, even when it costs you. This is the love that God has for you and me. And it's the love that he desires we have with one another. He desires our good. That's why he created us. And it must be so, because God has no usefulness for us outside of that which he gives us. And God has no pleasure in us outside of the fact that he chooses to. If we look at our first reading there on page three, God creates man or mankind in his image. Look at it with me. I'm sorry, the bulletin changed since I wrote my sermon. It's actually on page five. created them. So God chooses to create purely out of his love for mankind. Repeatedly in Genesis, in the Genesis story of creation, God looks at the world that he's created and what does he say? It is... It is good. It is good. By which he means... It is good and excellent. It is virtuous. It is fulfilling the purpose for that for which I created it. 13th century philosopher and theologian St. Thomas Aquinas writes this. He says that when we say that in him, that is God, there is a procession of love, we show that God produced creatures not because he needed them nor because of any other extrinsic reason, but on account of the love of his own goodness. Aquinas goes on to say that God creates and saves for the same reason, that both creation and salvation are acts of love. And when God's creation became lost due to Adam and Eve's sin and disobedience, God acted out of love to save it. The Apostle John records one of Jesus' most known sayings, known to those who probably have never even cracked open a Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In today's gospel lesson, later in John, from John 10, Jesus gives us one of the most beautiful images in Scripture. Recalling Psalm 23, he calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Look at it briefly with me, this time really on page 7. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then continuing there at verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own And my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you see? Jesus is giving this image of a shepherd who puts himself in the way of harm for his beloved. Jesus gives this image of laying down one's life, the greatest type of love for one's friend. Christians, those who've been baptized, who know and follow Jesus, know that it's due to this same love and by God's grace that those, received, that those who are part of Christ receive Jesus' self-sacrifice and are saved by it, and then are transformed by his life-giving spirit. For this reason, lasting Christian friendships and marriages must be based on this particular kind of love with this goal and this virtue, as we said at the beginning of the service, the good and the excellence that God creates is for each person, but also for those joined together in covenant. Christian friends, and certainly Christian husbands and wives, cannot merely use one another to advance themselves. That doesn't work. Or bring each other pleasure. Now, they might, work to advance one's, each other. I would hope that's part of it. And certainly they bring one another pleasure and mutual joy, yes. But that can't be the foundation of holy matrimony. For it's not the foundation of our relationship with God. But rather, this love, this love that the world doesn't get, but that God has given the world, is what binds together a Christian man and woman in holy matrimony, St. Paul talks about it a little bit in his letter to the Colossians, which David and Marion also chose today. Look with me at that reading. It's on page 6, Colossians chapter 3. Specifically, look at verses th- uh, 12 through 14. St. Paul writes, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, Do you see, love is the bond that brings with it these other things. Holy matrimony is God's gift to us, just as creation is God's gift to us. And God invites one man and one woman to put out a part of his kingdom, to build out a household that is just like his kingdom, a microcosm of creation, nothing less. This gift from God that he's given us to build is something that comes from Genesis but is also found through the marriage service to be fruitful and multiply. God is the creator of the world and the author of marriage, but it's also something that's built on love and self-sacrifice, first between husband and wife and then between father and mother for children. That's why in the church it's not called marriage but holy matrimony because children is the natural outgrowth of marriage. God intends for Christian marriage to be a bond and covenant to show the mystical union between Christ and his bride, the church, a covenant of love that brings forth life. All Christian marriages are for the purpose of this virtue if possible it's a joyful duty not just to demonstrate god's love for man and wife for the couple but as a family to be a testament to god to the larger community to the church to society itself and to the praise of god's holy name as we said at the beginning of this pass of this service the christian sacramental rite of holy matrimony stands in great contrast with marriages outside of the church. Because their end goal, because holy matrimony's end goal, rather, is so much more. As we look around us in our society today, we see all kinds of marriages. It's like build your own marriage. You ever go to uh, the the mall and those Build-A-Bear stores? I don't know if they're still around. But, you know, you pick out the color of the bear and the, you know, whatever it's wearing and then they stuff it and give it to you. That's what our society thinks about for marriage. It's have it your way, right? Build it out the way you want to. Christian marriage is something altogether different. It's something that God presents to us and we say yes to. As we look at those marriages outside of the church, we see all kinds of oddities, don't we? and all kinds of marriages falling apart because they're built on insufficient foundations and not in alignment with God's design. You see, while usefulness and pleasure are not bad things, as I've said, and are certainly part of marriage, they are utterly insufficient foundations for holy matrimony. Aristotle got it right when it comes down to it on this. When he said that such friendships built on that are easily dissolved, he was right because partners don't remain unchanged and as soon as one thing seems unpleasant or unuseful to the other one, it's the end of the relationship. Sadly, this happens even in the church. We see spouses who get confused about the reasons for holy matrimony. We see people who are lured away by the promises of the world for some greater usefulness or some better pleasure. But one thing that puzzles me as a priest is that I often find that Christians were never even told this. There's a confusion and an ignorance about what marriage is. And so it helps to know the end goal, doesn't it? To know why God created and gave this gift to us. It's right there in the prayer book, Look at page two in the service bulletin, which comes from the prayer book, which, of course, comes from Genesis. There's six reasons for holy matrimony, if we want to be succinct about it. One, to signify the mystical union. to Signify the mystical union between Christ and his church. Marriages are supposed to point to Jesus' love for the church and the church's love for Jesus' Second, procreation and the nurture of children. Marriages are to bring forth life when possible. Third, mutual joy. Christian marriage is to be something of mutual joy from one person to the other. Fourth, help and comfort. Marriages should be full of help and comfort, one spouse for the other. When one's weak, the other's strong, or perhaps both are weak together and press in together. To maintain purity. There's an acknowledgement in Scripture in the prayer book that we need holy matrimony to stay pure, to stay pure with our sexuality. And the sixth point, as a building block for the family, church, and society. Something that I've always said, holy matrimony already said, it's not just for the sake of the couple. It's for the sake of the larger community. Indeed, for the sake of the world, when you think about it. Holy matrimony has these very high goals. And those of us who are married should take a moment to once again consider what it means to be united. Because perhaps this is the first time that you've heard this, or perhaps you've forgotten it. But our marriages also have this these points. Our marriages are not for our own sakes, but for God's and the world's. So David and Marion are entering into this thing today, into this holy estate. As they enter into it, all of us who are married should ask ourselves, does my marriage show the union between God and the church? Do my neighbors see God in my marriage? Think of how much God loves and comforts and honors his people. How much he keeps his people and points to the, le- to the costing self-sacrifice on the cross. That's what husbands are called to do. To enter into all those. That's what David said earlier. To signify this mystical union as husbands, as fathers. How are you doing, husbands and fathers? Consider also... As the church, consider how the church obeys, serves, loves, honors, and keeps unto the Lord Christ. Wives and mothers, are you demonstrating this to the world around you? Do you look different from your pagan or unbelieving neighbors? Do you look different? Are you showing this, demonstrating how the church loves God? Husbands and wives, is your marriage a source of mutual joy, of help, of life, of comfort, of sexual purity? If you're able to do so, are you having children? Now, I'm not saying that we have to have children right away when we're married. My wife and I didn't. But we have to be open to that gift of life from God at some point in our marriage. If possible. And single Christians, you too have a calling. Your part is also a duty. As a single Christian, to hold and honor marriage as the holiest state that it is. To discourage divorce. To not engage in sexual impurity and the misuses of marriage that bring down this gift to encourage couples who need it, and we need it, to assist us with your prayers, to bring to us wisdom and grace and kind actions. Friends, don't get me wrong if you're thinking that this is getting to be an unachievable, uh, an unachievable task. The, the fact is that it is an unachievable task, and that's the next point. You see, once we understand the gravity of what marriage is, we can't help but to throw up our hands and say, I can't do that. I can't do that. And that's the point. Because just as with salvation, with marriage, you can't do it without the grace of God. God has to give you the grace to fulfill your calling. This is the reason that holy matrimony goes on from the bride and the groom making their declarations and taking their vows to praying for God's blessing, to beseeching God to give them the grace to do the things that they're called to do. Notice where we go from here in the service. You see, where Aristotle got things wrong is this, that men and women do change And virtue and goodness, while they themselves are permanent, we as good and virtuous people are not. We're all over the place. Sometimes we're good and virtuous, sometimes we apprehend things and engage in them with a good will and good faith, and sometimes we don't. But where we fall short, where we are not able to perform... Or the duties that we're supposed to. The Lord gives us his grace, as St. Paul writes to the Colossians. That love which binds everything together, which fills in the gaps, if you will. You see, just like with salvation, so it is with the sacramental rite of holy matrimony. We are to work. We are to put effort into things. But ultimately, everything depends upon the grace given to us by God. So it is that the gift from, comes from God and the ability to be who God calls us to be comes from God. That's why David and Marion chose Psalm 127 very wisely. Unless the Lord builds the house, those labor in vain who build it. I know that's your desire to let the Lord build the house. But for all of us, how do we let the Lord build our house, whether as an individual, in friendships, in the church, or in marriage? St. Paul has the answer, if we're willing to listen to him. Colossians 3.12, where he says, Put on them, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Verse 14, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you are called in one body. So he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. As followers of Jesus and Christians, you have Jesus, the king of love. You have the Holy Spirit working in you. You're not on your own, and you're not in your own in your marriage. You have Christ working in you. So in this way, holy matrimony is like your faith with Jesus. You can't simply do it on your own. You have to seek his grace. All of us are called to something greater. So you are called to something great today. By God's grace alone, you can fulfill that calling. So today, let us lift up David and Marion, asking for this grace, understanding the gravity of what they're called to, and knowing that the Lord will make good on his promise to supply our every need. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.